Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, April the 9th, 2021. This is episode 2854 of the Survival Podcast, and it is time on a Friday, Friday, Friday for an expert council Q&A show. That's right. We don't have monster trucks here on Friday, Friday, Friday. We do have the monster show of the week, though where you get to hear from some amazing experts that I, I, I feel so genuinely blessed to have working with me uh, on this podcast. I know there are other people that have like expert counsel type segments and shows and video segments and stuff. Now, I, I, I don't know that it really ever existed this way before this group of people came together and helped me do it here. And I don't know if I say it often enough, but to every member of the council, uh, past, present, and eventually future, uh, I, I, I really don't think the show could have become what it's become without you, so thank you very much. Here are the experts and the things they will be speaking to you about today. Dr. Ken Berry on dealing with acid reflux. Old Doc Bones on the risks and treatment of eye injuries. Tim Toolman Cook on miter saws. And powered wheelbarrows. Yeah, that's a thing that I've actually been thinking about. And I'll give you the one that I'll buy if I decide to do it. I'm not sure that I'm going to. I have some other things that maybe are better suited for me to pick up than one of those. But there is utility to them. Um, the good, the awesome, and the hype of the moringa tree from Nick Ferguson, plant guru extraordinaire. Derek Von Pietro helps you out with choosing a large van for a growing family. John Pugliano with a lightning round of financial questions. And me with a warning about the security of your crypto when it comes to software wallets and in general. Um, I got an email today that I really didn't like getting. I'll leave it at that for now. But I just it it just isn't the kind of email you want to, to, to get. And it wasn't mad at me or angry at me or anything like that. Because um, I had nothing to do really with what happened. But... It's one of those things that when it happens to somebody like, man, I oof, I really wish that you would have asked about security before, not after this happened. And we'll talk about how to make sure you maintain security of your crypto today, uh, especially as you move beyond you know, a few hundred bucks worth. Before we get to all of that, let's start off the day with a quote of the day. This is by Alfred Whitney Griswold. This is probably one of the more influential people that you've never heard of. He only made it into his 60s. He wasn't a very old man when he passed away. But he was an educator and a scientist. And he actually developed a lot of the scientific processes and labs and other things like that at Yale University, which has, you know, up until recent times, produced some of the most cutting-edge and useful to humanity scientific ideas that have ever come from anywhere. Um but I have him today not to talk about science, though my Miyagi Mornings episode today was about that to a degree, really to talk about ideas. He said one time, the only sure weapon against bad ideas is better ideas. And that definitely applies to you know scientific debate today. This idea that you can win a debate by shutting up the other side is, is, is pretty pathetic, and it's, it's the antithesis of science. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Alfred Griswold would agree with that if he were still around. Um, but I actually am bringing this to you from the context of things that I see when people argue against something like cryptocurrency. 
I saw a comment made in a telegram, telegram group today that all this cryptocurrency is just so they can control and enslave humanity. That's all that it is. Everything crypto is evil, something like that. Um, there's no doubt, in my opinion, that the governments of the world mean to move to a digitized currency. They want to get rid of cash, and they're going to do it. And whether there's a Bitcoin or not, or whether there's a pirate chain or not, or whether there's a Litecoin or not, or whether there's an Ethereum or not, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And it's not happening now because Bitcoin. It's happening now because, like we've talked about before, there are many things in history that there is a time that comes when they become inevitable. And governments of the world have wanted to get rid of cash for as long, almost as long as cash has existed because they would rather be able to trace and tax and control everything. Governments, if they have their way, you will need a permit to breathe. And they really think they're helping even though they're not. So when you have a thing that's a bad idea, like government digitizing all currency and making all transactions public and traceable, then the only sure weapon against a bad idea is a better idea, which is a currency that we control, that we can take custody and possession of, that has no weight to move. Right? It might need energy to move in the form of Bitcoin with proof of work, but it needs no energy to move it. Or it needs such a small trace amount of energy that it's, it, it's meaningless. It doesn't take much to send your cryptocurrency to another wallet address, even if you're not spending it, even if you're just making it more secure by moving it somewhere where it's not known where it is. The only sure weapon against bad ideas is better ideas. And I, I think that applies to more than cryptocurrency. That's just what made me pick this quote today. There are so many things that people are convinced that, like, it's the tool of the devil, man. That's so they can get us. Then you better be better at it than they are. You better have your own version, your own alternative. Uh, Xavier Hawkbrook brought this up uh, recently on an episode of Unloose the Goose, the one we did this week, episode 35. He was talking about the concept of social credit scores. And he's like, we need to develop our own version thereof of these things that are in private hands and private control because the government's going to have one sooner or later. And we have to have an alternative. I completely agree. If you doubt that, you need to look up the episode of Black Mirror. It's a British kind of like modern Twilight Zone that's way too close to reality for comfort. You need to look up the Black Mirror episode on social credit scores because it's, it's exactly what's already happening in China. And it's exactly what will happen next in Europe. And following that, it will happen here. I don't care. You're not going to go punish them at the ballot box. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to vote it away. The Constitution isn't going to prevent it. It might slow it down, but it won't prevent it. One thing we've learned about the Constitution, if we've paid attention to history, is the Constitution's a failure. <gasps> Did he say that? Oh, no, I can't believe he said that. I'm offended. Okay, well, it is. The purpose of the Constitution was to limit government, and government has grown since the day, every day since the Constitution was, was, was founded. And people say, well, we, the Constitution didn't fail us. We failed the Constitution. The Constitution either failed or it succeeded. There's no us failing it or us succeeding. It either was capable of limiting the growth of government or it was not. And it was not. Look at the size of your government today versus the size of your government in 1985. Look at the size of your government in... 1790 versus 1820. And tell me that the Constitution prevented the growth and expansion and, and increasing in power of government. It, it did not. So the only sure weapon against a bad idea, which is, hey, we should have a state, 
is a better idea, which is, hey, we should be able to create systems to govern ourselves. I know that seems impossible. It seems impossible. But how many things that seemed impossible not long ago are not only possible but self-evident today? Fifteen years ago, it seemed impossible that people could lay down some code and create a currency that would actually work better than dollars. But today we have many examples of them. Thirty years ago, it seemed completely impossible that somebody would develop a device that you could walk around with in your hand that would give you more computing power than all the computers put together that put a man on the moon in the 1960s. That it would enable communication around the world at no real cost. And that it would be so affordable that almost every human being on the planet in the developed world would own one. And yet we have many examples today, not just the iPhone. The iPhone being the most expensive one, honestly. And probably, the, the even though it's what I have, it's probably the least uh, capable of, of, of the better smartphones out there. But that, that seemed impossible, and yet we did it. And the government didn't do it. The government didn't do it. People did it. Outside of government. Private sector made Bitcoin. The private sector made the smartphone. The private sector made the internet. Al Gore did not create it. I'm sorry. Didn't happen. Never did. There are so many things that we think of that we say, yeah, well, I wish we could. I wish we could. Sometimes we need to stop saying, I wish we could, and start saying, let's go do it. And we all have different levels that we can participate in. Not everybody has the engineering capability or the programming capability or the, the skill set necessary to do some of the things that need to be done. But we all can be participants because participation is what makes a thing successful. Bitcoin is not successful because it's the greatest idea for a currency ever. Because people took that idea and made better versions thereof. No, it, it is the most successful one because it has the largest amount of participation not just in use, but in security. It is the most successful thing humanity has ever done because every one of those really expensive computers running, the, probably millions of them now, they exist for one purpose and one purpose only, to provide security for the network. Not to make the owner money. That's the byproduct. The purpose of the, the computer plugged into a data system that runs mathematical calculations continuously and competes to verify the next block so that it can win a little reward. The whole purpose of that box is to provide security to create the most secure financial network that's ever existed. Period. End of story. And that's because it's a better idea than their idea, which is a centralized controlled system where they can continue to print money on demand. So going back to our quote from yesterday from Michael Saylor about the road to serfdom. Do you guys remember what it was? Did you get yesterday's show? Well, I'll give it to you. The road to serfdom consists of working exponentially harder in order to earn a currency exponentially weaker. That's what we've been doing since 1913. The American worker has worked exponentially harder to earn a dollar, which has become exponentially weaker over those hundred-plus years. But a better idea was a currency that no one could screw with. And it's not just Bitcoin, and it's not just cryptocurrency. A better idea. The only defense against a bad idea is a better idea. Alfred Whitney Griswold, who as much as the man loved and contributed to the, the scientific process, 
To see science declared an authority and institution today, the man probably is spinning, unfortunately, in his grave. With that, let's go ahead and get into this. Let's hear from somebody that does believe in science as a process, Dr. Ken Berry, on dealing with a condition a lot of people deal with, acid reflux. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Dan. Uh, Dan says he maintains a low-carb lifestyle, but has recently be, been told he has an acid reflux condition. Part of his doctor's treatment was a bland diet consisting of lots of carbohydrates and lean meats. Also instructions to minif- minimize fats, including fattier cuts of meat. Uh, great question, Dan. So first of all, there is no research whatsoever proving that eating Fat, animal fat, in any way worsens reflux conditions. There are three substances that are known to uh, open up the lower esophageal sphincter, and this is this is basically a a pinching off of the lower esophagus or food tube. These three three things are nicotine, alcohol, and caffeine. So if you are using or overusing one of those three substances, that's most likely um, contributing to your reflux symptoms. Now, if you don't have any symptoms, then I'm not sure how your doctor diagnosed acid reflux. Uh, if fatty cuts of meat have no impact on reflux, uh, frying your food has no impact. And then also many, many hundreds and hundreds of people have reached out to me on social media telling me, that when they eat a low-carb diet, a ketogenic diet, a carnivore diet, that their reflux gets better or goes completely away. Just an aside, I used to have severe reflux back when I was eating the standard American diet and even a paleo diet, which was still high in carbohydrates. When I converted to a meat-heavy ketogenic diet, my reflux got 80% better. And now on a carnivore diet, I never have reflux at all. So enjoy your fatty meat, Dan. It's not causing your reflux. And also eating a high carbohydrate bland diet is in no way going to help your reflux. This is a medical myth or a medical lie, depending on how you want to look at it. Thanks a lot. I told you he was into science, you know. We can't just say a thing if there's no research that indicates a thing because everybody says a thing because everybody believes that science is an authority instead of a process. Instead, we follow the process to to a conclusion that leads us to at least a hypothesis that's based on reality, and then we attempt to employ that hypothesis, and therefore we judge the results. I I do believe those three substances he gave you, um, alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine, are the primary cause of most people's acid reflux. I have yet to talk to anybody that experiences a lot of acid reflux that doesn't imbibe in, in, in one of or, or multiples of, of those things. So anyway, moving on. Let's start off. We're leading off today with hearing from both of our doctors. Doc Bones on eye injuries. Watch out for your eyes, folks. You only get two of them. And some of us, like me, we only get one good one anyway. Doc, take it away. Hi, I'm Joel Mendy, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. The human body is truly a miracle of engineering from head to toe. Your skull 
is an example. It is shaped in such a fashion that your eyes are recessed in bony sockets, which helps to protect them from injury. Despite this, there are many different activities of daily living, not to mention daily survival, that can cause traumatic injuries to your eyes. Here are some. Accidents when using tools, splatter from bleach or household chemicals, debris flung while doing yard work, mowing the lawn, things like that, grease splatter while cooking, chopping wood for fuel, hot objects near your face like a curling iron. Do people use curling irons still? I, I don't know. The list goes on and on. Heck, you could damage your eye by popping a cork on a champagne bottle if you could find some champagne off the grid. The grand majority of eye injuries are avoidable with a little planning. But despite this, it's likely that the group medic is going to have to deal with somebody's eye injury at one point or another. Foreign objects in the eye cause immediate symptoms, especially if they injure the very, very sensitive cornea. You will see the victim complain of eye pain or pressure, tearing up, light sensitivity, frequent blinking, and redness, a bloodshot eye. The patient will usually tell you that they feel something in their eye. The most common location will be under the upper eyelid. Now, the most important thing to do when anyone presents to you with eye pain is a very careful examination. Use a moist cotton swab to lift and avert the eyelid, that is, turn the eyelid inside out. This will allow you to closely examine the entire area. Sometimes all it takes to remove debris is some clean, but not necessarily sterile, but drinkable water that's used as irrigation to flush it out. You want to flush out that debris. Alternatively, you can touch lightly with a moist Q-tip, and that might sometimes dislodge a little material. Now, let's say you looked and there is no foreign object. Take a close look at the cornea. I mentioned the cornea before. It is a clear layer of tissue that's over the colored part of the eye, known as the iris. It exists for purposes of protection and to help with focusing. Now, when this layer of tissue is scratched, it's called a corneal abrasion. This type of injury is very common and probably the most likely that you'll encounter. The cornea is rich in pain receptors and the patient will probably be uncomfortable. They'll complain they feel a grain of sand in their eye. Abrasions on the cornea may be hard to see. That's the problem without special dye eye drops. Consider lubricating eye drops to help ease the discomfort if it turns out that that's what you think you're dealing with. Healing usually occurs within a day or two. A high-speed impact is usually required to actually embed a foreign object in the eye. Mostly seen in explosions or, more commonly, power tool accidents, debris may impale the eye and actually cause significant pain. Difficult to remove even in the best of circumstances, you might have to expect some scarring, maybe some loss of vision, if it's directly on the cornea or the pupil. By the way, unless some long-term disaster has left you as the highest medical asset left, leave this stuff to qualified professionals. After cleaning with water and using antibiotic drops, the eye needs to rest and heal. You want to cover with an eye pad or the bottom maybe of a paper cup and tape in place. Your eyes track together so it's better to cover both eyes if you possibly can. Ibuprofen is useful for pain relief. Over the next few days, the eye should heal by itself. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, so be sure to wear eye protection whenever you are performing any activity that could possibly cause an eye injury, such as shop work, target shooting, or using power tools. Anyone who is close to you when you're doing these activities should also wear protective gear. 
Other things to consider when working in the yard, watch out for low-hanging branches. Before mowing the yard, remove loose objects in your path. Make sure that your kids never point water under force, say from a garden hose, directly at somebody's face. Make sure you put in contact lenses carefully. Don't sleep in them. Keep your fingernails trimmed short. And use a grease shield whenever you're using a frying pan. Occasionally, blunt trauma in the eye or even simple actions like coughing or sneezing may cause a patch of blood to appear in the white of the eye. This is called the subconjunctival hemorrhage. It can look pretty scary to the patient, so you probably will hear something from somebody that has this. Luckily, this type of hemorrhage is rarely dangerous, and it will go away on its own without any treatment in most cases. There's not much you can do about this in austere settings. Cool compresses applied to the affected eye are also recommended. This is Joe Alden at Old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits, books, and more at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, we got a question for Tim Toolman Cook on miter saws and on powered wheelbarrows. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer two questions for the expert council, so let's get right at it. This week's first question comes from Mike, and he asks, Hey Tim, I'm looking for a miter saw. I'm planning on redoing my deck this summer, and I need a good miter saw to get the job done right. I'll be using composite boards. I already have DeWalt tools, and I like the brand. But it could be any brand. Thanks for your help. So Mike, since you've already shown that you have impeccable taste in tools, I guess you know the suggestion I'm going to make. But all kidding aside, you guys should know me by now how I feel about being on a single platform of batteries. It helps build, it helps to build in redundancy. That doesn't mean if there are better tools out there on a different platform, you should ignore them just because they're not your brand. But all things being equal, go with what you already have and already know. That way your batteries and chargers are all interchangeable. So that being said, since you're already a DeWalt guy, I guess you're talking also about DeWalt cordless. A little less than a year ago, I replaced my old 12-inch electrical Sears no-name brand sliding compound miter saw. I think the thing weighed about 1,200 pounds. And I replaced it with the DeWalt 7.25-inch cordless compound miter saw. And I haven't looked back. The bare tool is 280 bucks on Amazon, US dollars. The model number is DCS361B, and the kit is 350 USD on Amazon. It includes a charger and a 4 amp hour battery, and the model number for that is DCS361M1. It has become possibly my favorite tool. First, whenever I would show up to build a fence, I no longer need to find an outdoor plug, run an extension cord, and then make sure it's close enough to do the work. At just over 30 pounds, it folds down nice, and it has a beautiful carry handle on both sides so that you can carry it down at your side and walk and not have to worry about it. It handles a piece of laminate floor, which is over 7 inches wide, and how often do you need to chop something deeper than that? And if you do, and if I do even, I have my circular saw for that. The power is all I could ever ask for, and the battery life is incredible. I put a fully charged 6 amp hour flex volt battery on it at the beginning of a whole house laminate floor job. I laid about a thousand square foot of laminate plus all the associated moldings and never even got down to one light showing on the battery. 
I cannot believe how good the power and runtime has gotten on these newer generation of cordless tools. If you're looking for something larger, DeWalt also offers a fully featured 12-inch sliding compound miter saw as well, which will run off the 60-volt flex-volt batteries or has an AC cord that allows it to run off 120-volt household power as well. I haven't used it yet, but it's rather interesting. The bare tool is around 800 bucks on Amazon, so it's not cheap. Finally, if you're looking for a good complement to that cordless miter saw I recommended before, look at the folding miter saw stand that DeWalt has as well. I got that recently to go along with my seven and a quarter, and I wish I'd gotten it sooner. It's lightweight, it folds down into a small footprint, and has a really well-balanced handle that makes it easy to carry it in and out of a job. They have two different versions. One will handle up to 10-foot material, and one will handle up to 16. I went with the shorter one because it's lighter, and I'm all about portability. If I want longer, I can always throw up a sawhorse or a roller stand. But once you put the brackets on the saw itself to mount to the stand, it goes on and off so easily. And the brackets don't interfere with the saw at all. It, it allows it to sit flat and work just like it did if it's not on the stand. I'll send the links to all the products I talked about to Jack, as well as a link to my review video on the cordless miter saw if you want to see it in action. Okay, this week's second question comes from Ed, and he asks, Are there any battery-powered wheelbarrows which are capable tools. Can you make any recommendations? While we work on our small homestead every day, we are in our 60s and not getting any younger. The idea of a powered wheelbarrow seems attractive, but I don't want another gas-powered anything. Are there any battery-powered wheelbarrows that are capable of doing real work on hilly land? Mostly, we move soil, mulch, compost, feed, etc. on a moderately sloped terrain. All options in this class are pricey, but so is back surgery. Thanks, Ed. All right, Ed, so this is an area I hadn't really explored before, so I had to do some digging. There are a few options out there, and you are right. Most of them are rather pricey. The best ones seem to be the PAW, I assume that's how it's pronounced, P-A-W, 44219. It's quite incredible at what it's capable of doing. It allows a person to take loads up inclines that they wouldn't typically be able to do. It's currently unavailable on Amazon, but there's other vendors online that have it in the $700 range. So it's not horrible, but you know. And surprisingly, Makita makes one as well, which runs off their 18-volt battery platform, but their price on that seems to be well over a grand. So without knowing your budget, it's hard to say how much is too much, but both of these options are certainly cheaper than back surgery. Not sure what other options you may have considered already, but depending on what type of property you live on, there may be some other options. Quite a few years ago, my dad bought a really nice four-wheel wheelbarrow. It was rugged and managed to haul way more than a normal one would. It also had a dump handle on it so that the front would flip down and dump the load. His had two smaller wheels on the front, but there have been some I've seen more recently with four rugged off-wheel style, off-road style wheels, I guess you could call them. These are great and certainly help save the back. If you already have a ride-on lawnmower or a zero-turn, look at putting a small hitch on the back and get a small utility trailer. You'll be surprised at what they can haul up a small incline. Or, if the budget allows it, a lot of side-by-sides have small dump bodies on the back as well. And a good used one is still a fair price, but it's a tool that can be used for so many things as you get older and will only become more indispensable. A ton of older farmers and younger farmers and ranchers in my area use them because they're just, they make life so much easier. I know that wasn't a ton of information, but if you want to follow up with me and give me 
some more information regarding your specific situation, feel free to at therealtimcook at gmail.com, and I'll try to find something that works for you specifically. Also, if anyone else has any solutions for this situation, feel free to send them along to me as well. All right, guys, that's it for me. If you haven't, take a minute and run by toolmantim.co and follow the link to my Odyssey channel, where I have an Odyssey First video called Workshop Weekend every Saturday, and some exclusive content not seen anywhere else. And if you're looking for another social media platform to check out, join me on float.app, that's F-L-O-T-E dot A-P-P, where I've been doing a small Tuesday video series called Float First. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So on the wheelbarrow, I don't think I'll ever actually get the thing that I'm going to talk about here because I don't think that I need it. Um, I don't think it will do enough for me in order to part with 750 bucks. I do use a two-wheel wheelbarrow significantly because there are times when a tractor and a trailer, and when I'm talking about a lawn tractor and a small utility trailer here, uh, maybe just aren't the most convenient thing. and Or maybe it's doing one thing and we're doing multiple projects, that type of thing. But if I did get something in this vein, and I did consider it for a while, there's a company called Landworks, and they make really good stuff. They make a utility cart hand truck, and it looks a lot like what I call a Karen cart. Karen carts are the little fold-up wagons that go in the back of a, you know, the back of your trunk or whatever that you see a lot of, uh, you know, middle-aged white women using at soccer games. That's why I call them a Karen cart. I am the owner of a Karen cart. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, hundred, $150 product here. Um, that I mounted some fishing uh, rod holders to, uh, very simply, with some self-tapping screws so that I can go fishing in places where I don't want to carry all my shit across a field, you know, half a mile, uh, where it really wouldn't be that bad, except it's just that far. Uh, I also take a lot of fish and bring them back, and then when you add water, all of a sudden what wasn't that bad to carry becomes bad to carry. So that is what I'm talking about here. The, the Landworks utility cart, it's like a hand truck wagon is what they call it. It runs on AGM batteries, uh, so it's easy to replace them. It runs on 48-volt DC, and it has a load and hauling capacity of a 1,000 pounds. Though I have to say, unless you were hauling lead, I don't know how you would fit a 1,000 pounds in it, because it's not much bigger than your typical Karen cart. If there's anything I don't like about it, it's a three-wheel design. So it's a two-wheels um on the rear that bear the, mo the majority of the load of weight in a single wheel in the front, and the rear wheels are the drive wheels, and it has a differential, so both wheels are capable of spinning depending on what's going on. What is nice about the single wheel in the front, uh, where the operator would be, which really is more of the back is how you would tend to use it, I would expect, is that it does make it incredibly maneuverable, and it's about $750. Bucks. Um, given that it comes with the batteries, that's not that expensive. It also does dump. It is kind of a mesh steel frame, but you can throw a tarp in it um, for hauling dirt or whatever, something that might fall through it. Uh, and the sides do come off where it basically converts to like a flatbed little trailer. You also can get a hitch for it so that you can tow it rather than use... Uh, the mechanization port of it, so it's not a unitasker. It can be both a tow-behind and a hand truck at the same time. I haven't gotten it. I probably won't because we have a tractor and a cart. 
But the main reason I considered it is, you know what, if I have to take, I, as much as I can fit in a wheelbarrow, I can push my properties mostly flat. Uh, I have a grandson, I have a wife. Not as much. So that's why I considered this. If it works for you, I would look at potentially getting it. Um, and, and if you were going to get something like this, it's, it's something I would definitely look at. Again, Landworks, um, what I like about them, I'm not guaranteeing you're not going to have a problem with this, but it has a good warranty. Now, what I am guaranteeing you is if you have a problem, their customer service is freaking excellent. So they're going to make it right. And I think that is the most important thing when you're dealing with anything that can break and anything mechanical can and sooner or later will break or mechanics wouldn't have jobs. All right, with that, let's move on. Nick Ferguson talking to you about the Moringa Tree. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson with another TSB Expert Council answer. We got all the tree shipments out and delivered, finishing up a couple designs for clients and finally starting to get caught up on back work just in time to naturally be a week late with my garden. Hopefully this year I'll still be able to get the garden all prepped and planted, but, you know, clients always come first. This week we have a question about a hyped up plant and whether or not it's what everyone says it is. This uh, question was from Roger McDowell, and he sent it to Ben Falk, or whoever's most qualified to answer. Uh, is all the hype about the Moringa tree true? I've seen lots of information about the miraculous benefits of the Moringa tree. Is it fact or fiction? If it's fact, how do I grow Moringa in Zone 6B? I know it's a tropical tree, but can it be grown as a container plant or as an annual, or is there a way to overwinter it? Roger. All right, well, first off, let me say it is a fantastic tree, and yes, it's hyped up a lot, but for good reason. It's very nutritious and digestible, so if you're looking for a leafy green to add to your diet, I think growing a couple Moringas in pots would be a good idea. Uh, you could essentially grow it as like a coppice tree or a short pollard in a pot. So you can move it inside and outside as weather permits. It grows very fast. So I would definitely recommend keeping it pruned or else, I mean, it'll shoot up to 10, 12, 15 feet tall if you let it. And that normally doesn't work very good for an indoor plant. Uh, you'd harvest the leaves and shoots as needed and add it to your salads and cooked greens, you know, soups, stuff like that, sautéed veggies, uh, anything like that, uh, I'd advise you to do some research into how to use the plant and when to avoid it. Roots are known to cause uterine contractions, so be careful if you're using roots or extracts if you are pregnant or if the food is being given to someone who is or who might become or be pregnant. Basically, do your research because I'm not advising you to eat it without understanding what risks might actually exist. It is not a miracle plant. Definitely way overhyped, like many plants tend to be in the permaculture world. Normally these plants come to attention of well-meaning people who get really excited about it. And, you know, just like any, any story, it kind of gets exaggerated and gets built upon and, and everyone wants to feel a little bit important. So it, it just kind of gets hyped and hyped and hyped until it's this miraculous plant and tree that heals all the ills of the world if you just plant it. So definitely take it with a grain of salt. Uh, yes, you can absolutely grow it as either an annual or container plant in Zone 6B. If you're growing it as a perennial, 
You need to keep it in a heated greenhouse or in a container to protect it from cold weather. It does not like temps below 60 degrees. And at around 40 Fahrenheit, it defoliates. It'll drop all its leaves and it'll kind of go dormant. It can survive cold temps and dormancy, but it does not do well with frost or below freezing temps. So just be careful about that. So to recap, yes, it's a great tree, high protein, great to have in your toolbox of plants and trees on your property. Being a tropical tree, it might actually end up just being a little bit more hassle than it's really worth, unless you just like the novelty of a different leafy green source to add to soups and salads and to feed to your animals. So I hope that answers your questions, man. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. Next, uh, Derek Bonpietro on choosing a van to live down by the riverside. No, no, no. Choosing a large van. Uh, go ahead, Derek, and take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a van question from a Jonathan R. Let's get into it. What have your experiences been with the Chevy Express or the Ford Transit in relation to ease of maintenance, durability, and longevity? We are looking for a large passenger van for a growing family and are between a, a 16 Ford Transit and a 16 Chevy Express. We would like something that is fairly straightforward to work on and lasts us at least a decade. Since we are in East Texas, we don't have the salt issues our northern friends do. All right, Jonathan, let's talk vans. Now, you mentioned maintenance, durability, and longevity. So as far as ease of maintenance, you're working on a van, and you're working on an American domestic full-size van, which means... Anything aside from really checking the air filter or the fluid levels is going to require removing the doghouse. That doghouse is basically the hump that sits between the two front seats. That's got to come out to get to pretty much all of the engine. So I'd say they're both pretty much on par with each other because they both suffer the same exact, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, ability to jam your hand in between the body and the engine to get to pretty much access to any of the parts, you know, the spark plugs, the wires. Things like that. Now, durability, both of these platforms have been around for a while. The engines, the transmissions have been around for a while. So they all have a pretty proven track record. I don't think there's anything specific that would scare me away as far as like, oh, no, this thing's got a really bad engine or transmission that's notorious for failing. I think both of those options that you gave for the Transit and the Express van are both pretty good from like, an expectation of getting a quarter million miles out of it without any kind of major issues. Now, when you lay these two options out, I've got like three quarters of the experience to answer this question. The quarter that I don't is really about driving the transit on a day-to-day basis and how it rides and how it responds to inputs and things like that. I just don't have a transit. I've never driven one, so I really can't speak as far as how much I like that. But we've had two F-150s in our family and they do share a lot of components in the driveline, so I can give you a little advice. So when we're talking about the transit, you've got some options that carry over to the F-150, especially the engine and transmission. So the EcoBoost V6, I would probably stay away from the naturally aspirated one, which is the base model, just because it's probably going to be pretty lethargic. I think the EcoBoost is going to serve that platform well. They do get pretty good fuel economy. They are a little more complicated than, say, the, the LS V8 and the Express Fan. You've got two turbochargers. You've got direct fuel injections, which is a high-pressure system, a little more complicated. But we had an older F-150 with a 3.5 EcoBoost that had about 140 on it before the local dealership stripped the drain plug and blew my engine up. And up to that point, engine, transmission, all of it, perfect condition. 
We didn't have any of the timing chain noise problems. We didn't have any turbo problems. Occasionally that truck would throw a check engine light for a catalytic converter inefficiency, mainly when it was like idling for long times in the winter, but it would clear itself out after a while. Aside from that, I mean, literally five-star reliability. Can't say enough about that. Now, they blew that engine up for me. So we got into a newer F-150 with a 2.7. Now, the 2.7 EcoBoost isn't available in the transit, but I can tell you they still share the transmission. That transmission responds, shifts, everything about it I love. I think I'm really impressed with Ford's quality since the 90s. has really gone up since we moved out of those old platforms with the Triton engines. I can't say enough about them. I tell you, if I'm in the market for a new pickup truck or a van, I would be looking at the Ford product. I'm impressed with the ride quality of the F-150, the fit and finish of the interior. Everything about it I really like. Now, I can't say how the Transit rides compared to the Express van, but I think it's pretty comparable. But I think you're going to have to go out and probably compare it to the other one yourself because I really can't comment on it, so I just want to be straightforward. Now, let's talk Express van. The Express van is an offering dating back to like the mid-90s, so it's a much older platform compared to the Transit. The Transit is more of like a newer European-styled van, kind of chasing after the Sprinters, where the Express van is like the good old van you'd find dating back to the 90s, 80s, 70s, and earlier. It's a traditional body-on-frame, so it's going to be a little bit more rugged than the Transit. They do offer a V6, which I wouldn't even look at. You're going to be looking at a 4.8, 5.3, or 6-liter V8. There were some big blocks and some Duramaxes way back, but for the 2016 model, you're pretty much going to get a half ton with a 4.8, three-quarter ton with a 4.8, or a 6-liter. Both of those are going to have six-speed automatics. Now, my express van that I'm currently driving, my employer gives me, it's a 2015, so it's going to be built pretty much the same as what the model year you're looking at. I've put about 80,000 miles on. I'm at 150 right now and have had no check engine lights, no issues with the engine transmission, no oil leaks. Honestly, it's been a rock-solid performer. My older van, which was a 2000s, I think drove better, but up to 250,000 miles, really had no major issues as well. Now, around that time, it blew a spark plug out. It's got tons of oil leaks, exhaust manifolds rotted out, so I think it's definitely peaked, but up to that point, has been a solid performer as well, and I think has been handed off like three different times to technicians, so it certainly paid for itself. Now, let's talk about the downside to the Express Band. I am envisioning myself going to work and spending about three to four hours every day in that thing. Sitting in the interior, the fit and finish is terrible. The plastics are super cheap. The layout on the dash is really dated, meaning buttons are kind of spread out everywhere. It's basically they put the climate controls, a radio, and buttons for the vehicle wherever they fit. They're not intuitively placed. The plastics wear out. So we're talking about like the wear on the steering wheel. The seats wear out. So my last van, I had to replace the seat. My current van, you can tell that the foam is breaking down. And granted, it's still a 2015, even though it's got some, some miles on it. I don't expect a seat to break down. And, and the Ford products and the F-150s, you know, at 140,000 miles, the seat foam itself was firm. The cloth was in good shape. It wasn't ripped or wearing out prematurely. So I think if you compared the two and you're sitting inside of them, the, tr the Transit's definitely above and beyond the Express van. The Express van shows its architecture age because it just is cheap. The froster, it just seems to be in the wrong spot. The wipers ice up in the wintertime. Things like that, the attention to details, I think the Express Van is terrible. Now, haven't had too much wear and tear. Usual stuff like brakes and tires, a little bit of steering stuff like uh, idler arms. But other than that, it's been pretty rock solid. But 
it's just rides terrible. It's built like a pickup truck and a poor one at that. So again, I'm just going back to you're using this thing every day. It's all the things that you touch, the steering wheel, the seats, the buttons, and the express van just loses out. So when you compare them as far as durability and reliability, honestly, I think you can't go wrong with either platform. But if this is more for creature comforts instead of like we're throwing cargo in the back and just going and it's used for work, I think the Transit's going to beat the express van out. So that's my personal opinion. And obviously, I tell everybody to drive the vehicles that you're interested in and pick one for yourself. I think the express van beats out the Transit as far as like the ease of maintenance. It's a pretty straightforward engine. Parts are cheap. There's tons of information on the internet on how to work on a Chevy LS V8. So I think that particular engine and transmission will beat out the Ford as far as, you know, doing the oil change, doing the plugs, just the old wear and tear stuff, you know, water pumps. But when you actually drive the vehicle, the Chevy is terrible. There's so much lag on the throttle. It doesn't know what gear to go in. Coming up an on-ramp and the thing's already trying to jump in the sixth. And it's literally, I have a cruise mode where I'm doing about 75, and then I have the wide open mode because the thing is constantly in the wrong gear and it only responds to wide open. You might not care when you're driving this. You might think that I'm crazy and talking about stuff that doesn't matter, but if you drive it, you might notice that. And I tell you, after being in it for a year and a half, it drives me nuts. So that's my opinion. Hope that steers you in the right direction, Jonathan. As always, thank you for the questions, guys. Take care. And next up, and a lightning round, and I do mean a lightning round, covering a lot of ground. John Pugliano with your investing and finance questions this week. Hello, TSP. Today we have a lightning round of questions. Let's see how many I can get through. The first question comes from Tom, and Tom asks, Is there anything I can do with a variable annuity other than keep it? Well, Tom, when it comes to annuities, that's the question I get the most of is how do I get out of them? And, of course, that answer depends. Tom goes on to give me some details about this. Uh, his wife had rolled a 401K into this variable annuity. Uh, he didn't tell me exactly how long they've been in it, but I'm sensing it's probably quite some time. And, Tom, just to give you a short answer, you most likely can terminate this contract, and depending upon how long you've been in it, will determine what type of back-end surrender charge or other types of fees that they may charge you. Since your wife rolled this out of a 401k, I'm assuming that it's still in the guise of some type of a qualified plan or maybe held within an IRA. And in that case, my advice would be to only terminate the contract with the annuity provider. Make sure you preserve the tax-deferred status of the retirement account itself and then just roll that amount over into an IRA at a discount broker like Charles Schwab or E-Trade. And so the first thing you want to do here is contact that annuity provider, ask them what the termination process is, what type of fees or surrender charges are going to apply, and then make sure that you can preserve the retirement status of this by rolling it over to an IRA at a discount broker. The next question comes from Sean, and Sean says, should I keep or dump my GE stock after the proposed 1-8 to eight reverse split? Well, Sean's question goes back to about a month or so ago where the GE board proposed this reverse split. Sean, I haven't heard any more about it. So I think that the board of directors is no longer considering that reverse split since they got such a poor reaction from Wall Street. As far as the general question, though, I mean, generally splits and reverse splits in and of themselves don't matter because the underlying principle remains the same. In the case of GE, I think the board of directors has just come to the realization that 
the old glory days of GE are over and the immense amount of stock that's been issued are just too many shares given the overall market capitalization of the company and that just through normal organic growth, this company is not going to be, you know, a hundred dollar stock on its own. And so they're just trying to clear the deck of the past mistakes. And in this particular case, I think the big problems with GE are already in the past and they're just trying to do what they can to manage through it. I personally own GE stock. It's more than doubled since the election. And while I think the easy money's been made in it, I'm holding my position because I think there's a, another good 25 or 30% upside left in this stock. And our next question comes from Courtney in Connecticut. And her question is, do I always advise against taking an early distribution from a 401k? Well, Courtney, the answer to that is pretty much yes. I almost always think it's a bad idea to take an early distribution from any retirement account. In her particular details, her family's planning on moving and relocating, and she's thinking about taking the early distribution from a 401k to add it to the equity that she already has in her existing home and use that to purchase a new home in Florida. Courtney, in your case, I really do think this is a bad idea because you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're taking money that's in a tax-deferred status, and you're using that to purchase a new home, the reason I think this is a bad idea in your case, Courtney, is that you're not really doing anything that's helping your overall position other than maybe you're saving a little bit of money on interest for your mortgage, but you're doing that at the penalty of losing the tax-deferred status of the retirement money being in the 401k. And right now, with interest rates being as low as they are, I don't think that's a very prudent decision. Look at your overall net worth and the different areas where it's dispersed. You want to be saving and putting money into paying down your mortgage. But at the same time, you don't want to neglect your retirement savings. You should be taking a portion of your wages and putting that aside for retirement. And so you have to have the discipline and the foresight to adjust your living expenses so that you can take that reserve capital of money that you have and properly allocate it to all those different buckets. Now, it seems overwhelming when you're first getting started, but it can be done. And just like living a healthy and balanced lifestyle, it's what has to be done. So don't obsess about just taking all your money and putting it into the equity in your home. Look at your overall holistic net worth situation and distribute your cash reserves accordingly. The next question comes from Roger, and he wants to know how to set up a self-directed IRA to invest in crypto. Well, Roger, setting up a self-directed IRA has actually become pretty easy over the years. You know, going back a decade or so ago, it was very complicated. Now there are a number of reputable companies that will act as your custodian and allow you to have your own self-directed IRA. Now, here's the problem. Although there are a number of reputable companies that can help you do that, there are probably even more companies that are not reputable and will rip you off with hidden fees or shoddy record keeping that could get you in trouble with the IRS. So the good news is, is that it can definitely be done. The bad news is, is that I personally don't have a company that I can recommend for you. So it's not to say they don't exist because they do, but you have to remember that in a lot of cases, it's just like anything else. You get what you pay for. So go out, do your research, read customer reviews, talk to other people that might be using a self-directed IRA custodian and also so that you can make sure that you're preserving the overall value of your investment. I'm sorry I don't have better advice for you. I just see that self-directed IRA market 
as being very convoluted, not transparent, and there's so many bad players in it that I personally just have chosen to avoid it altogether. Now, that's a really conservative approach on my part, but personally for me, when it comes to my retirement savings, I would rather be conservative and safe and stick with top-shelf, high-quality, mainstream, normal custodians, and I don't have to worry about the threat of excess fees or any type of counterparty risk. Our next question comes from Danny, and he's asking about mergers and acquisitions. If you have two stocks that are in a merger and acquisition, you know, how do you handle that? Do you sell one and hold the other, or do you just hang on with both? And Danny, with most things, it really all depends. In your particular case, you're talking about the merger of RCI and SJR. Danny, it really comes down to a couple things. One is, you know, do you really think the merger is going to happen? Because in a lot of cases, just because a merger is announced, there may be problems with getting it approved, either by the board of directors or by the regulatory authorities. And sometimes the deals fall through, so that's part of the risk. And then the other side of it is you have to look at it and say, long term, do you think this is a good merger and acquisition and that it's going to create shareholder equity and growth? So if you think it's a good thing long term, you might just want to hold both stocks and you know let the chips fall where they may, and you'll be an owner in the new company. Now, I don't know what proportion you own these two stocks in, but for me personally, just looking at the way that SGR has spiked up in price, and given how poorly that RCI has performed you know over the past couple years, I mean, they've been really in a downward trend for the last couple years, long before the COVID problem set in. So given the poor performance of RCI, and the fact that its stock price really hasn't jumped with the news of this acquisition, then personally, I would be inclined to sell both of these and take my money and run. And looking at the overall future earnings prospects for both of these companies, neither one of them looks like they have much of a stellar future. Now, I haven't really dug into this. I'm just looking at the superficial analyst reports that I see. So take that with a grain of salt. But personally, I think there's a lot better opportunities in the stock market than either one of these two companies. Now, our final question comes from Eric. He sold a home. He's sitting on a bunch of cash. He's not ready to make another purchase for another maybe 12 or 18 months. And he wants to know what he should do with the money. Eric, I'll give you some simple advice. I think your time horizon is too short to do any type of investing. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you're talking about maybe putting some in crypto, putting some in metals, putting some in the stock market. Listen, over the next 12 to 18 months, all of those asset classes that you described can be extremely volatile, especially the crypto and the metal side of things. And while that volatility could play in your favor and you could get lucky and get a really big appreciation in your overall assets, the other side of that coin is that you could be unlucky and take a really big loss. And if you really are going to need this money in the next 12 to 18 months, then I just wouldn't take those type of chances. I wouldn't worry about any devaluation or loss of purchasing power because of inflation. Because over the time period you're talking about, I think you're more likely to see downside volatility in the markets as opposed to dollar devaluation. You also mentioned that you're not a sophisticated investor and, you know, maybe you'd have to hire somebody. Listen, the same thing would apply to anybody you hire. You're just not giving them a long enough of an investment horizon to weather any kind of storms that we may see. And, you know, personally, while I think the markets are going to be doing just fine, we are at record highs across a lot of asset classes. 
and we could easily see a you know 10 to 20 percent pullback. That's something I wouldn't worry about for a long-term investor. But if you need this money in six months or you know 18 months from now, you may not be able to dig yourself out of that hole. So Eric, my advice to you is play it safe. Keep that money in an FDIC-insured savings account. Well, hey, guys, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Um, next up, my my segment this week, and I, this is one of those ones that I've talked about it before. I wish I didn't have to talk about it in the way that I'm going to talk about it today. I got an email from somebody this morning that said they watched as $14,000 dissipated and disappeared in real time from their crypto wallet. In this case, it was a Jax Liberty wallet on a mobile phone. I don't know if it was an iPhone or Android version thereof. And I I hate hearing that. $14,000 is life-altering. It's not like you lost 50 bucks. So I have a couple things that I want to say about this if you're if you're getting into crypto and beginning to accumulate crypto. First off, I think holding on an exchange like a Coinbase or Bittrex or whatever is probably a bad idea. However, if if you were going to hold a lot of currency, a significant amount on on an exchange, a good secure exchange like Coinbase, which has never been hacked, or a software wallet like a multi-currency light wallet like a Jax or a Coinami or, or an Exodus, I would hold it on the exchange before I would hold it on a software wallet in that kind of quantity. Okay? Now, I know what you're thinking, but you said to get it off an exchange. Yes! And when you get over a certain amount, you really need to look at something like, you know, a Trezor or something like that. You look at a hardware wallet and you need to move the, the large sums uh, specifically of things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, etc. All those things are supported by hardware wallets. There's no reason not to into what's called a cold storage environment, which means unless someone gets your public and private key, they ain't getting your crypto. That, that's what it means. It's, it's The wallet itself is disconnected. That's what cold storage is. It's disconnected from the Internet. You can't hack a thing that you can't gain access to. It, and, and this is another part of security protocols, though. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you are 100% safe in that situation either, because public keys, private keys, seed phrases, all that stuff needs to be safeguarded. So here's a way at times that people end up committing a data breach, and you shouldn't do this. They set up a wallet on their phone. They get a seed phrase, you know, it gives this list of so many words, and they screenshot it to back it up. And maybe they're using a system where their computers are syncing, like an iPhone, and you're using iCloud. And now your picture of your seed phrase is on your other computers and other devices, and God knows how it can get out then, right? Or they put it in their notes app on their phone, which then through iCloud or, or other sharing services like Evernote ends up at other places. And shocking as it might be, when you look at a seed phrase in this time and place, you know what it is. You know what it is. When you see a list of words like that, you know it's a seed phrase. 
And you can start plunking it into things and seeing what it does for you. And next thing you know, you're sweeping somebody's wallet empty. That could have been what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't think the individual knows what happened. But I don't think this is a problem with Jack's Liberty wallets. I think it's an operator error most most likely. I'm going to get to another potential problem that can happen here. But I've, I, I, you, you, you have got to be careful with this. These things need to be written down. If you use a computer and you print it, it needs to be immediately, once you know you have it printed, it needs to be deleted. And remember, nothing's actually deleted until it's fully deleted, and sometimes it's never fully deleted. Hillary Clinton's emails, right? If it can happen to her, it can happen to you. You understand how that all works? Like when you delete something, it just makes the file space available. It doesn't mean it's actually gone. And then that needs to be safeguarded and protected. And I'm going to give you another thing you can do. But you need to make sure that the people that you care about, that you would want to have your crypto if you get hit by a bus, know how to deal with this if you do it. One thing you can do is add a certain number of words to a seed phrase on either side of it, which would make it much more difficult for it to be used. What I mean is you could take a word like boy and then words like Frank, elephant, the uh, computer, and add them like you could put boy at the beginning of your seed phrase and those three words at the end. Or you could put two and two or three and one. There's ways that you could do that. Right? You could intentionally scramble your seed phrase so that the first two words and the last two words are swapped plus the integrate. But you would have to be 100% certain that you'd be able to undo what you did and your brother-in-law or your mommy or your daddy or your uncle or your kids and more than one would know how to undo it. Somewhere there should be a documentation of how to do it for your heirs to get it. Okay? And I think that's important because you don't, not only do you not want to lose it, you don't want it to die with you. And that has happened. And so if your wife knows, but only your wife knows, and the two of you are in a car together and you get in a wreck and you're both dead, or you're both on life support and they need money to keep you alive and your kids can't get to the money, or your brother or your cousin or whoever you would leave it to, you need to make sure there is a, a process in place. If you don't want to give them the information now, it's probably a good idea because they literally can take the money. But there needs to be a process in place when X happens, I'm dead, Y occurs, and Bill gets this information somehow. Okay? That is critical component to the longevity security as well. Again, I think once you're over you know, several thousand dollars, you need to look at something like a Trezor or another hardware wallet and get at least the majority of your, any crypto you're, you're planning on holding long term into there. In Coinbase, if you, if you insist on holding in Coinbase with Bitcoin, I don't know if they've added this for other currencies, but they have a thing called a vault. And it locks your Bitcoin into a vault that requires several steps to get it out. And it takes you personally 48 hours to get it out. It's about the most secure thing that's not, that's, that's custodial that I know of. 
Again, I don't recommend it, but if that makes you feel better, it's probably safer than you walking around with your phone and somebody has access to fourteen or forty or four hundred thousand dollars if they get a hold of your phone. And there's people doing it. And it's not safe. Next, if you are going to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and use light wallets, etc. to hold my crypto, I don't care. Then you're probably better off getting the light wallets for each individual currency and holding your Bitcoin in a Bitcoin wallet and your Litecoin in a Litecoin wallet and your Ethereum in an Ethereum wallet and your ARC in the ARC wallet, which you should do anyway for staking, right? And, and the reason for that is you have each one, if you're holding multiple currencies, compartmentalized in its own security. So if I do get access to your Litecoin, I don't by, by proxy get access to your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, if you're holding multiple currencies. So that's a thing, too. And it, it is something that as you begin to accrue, you need to think about. Now, I also don't think it makes sense to go out and buy a $200 hardware wallet to start accepting cryptocurrency when you sell a $50 product. I, I don't think it makes sense to spend more on the wallet than the amount of Bitcoin you have. Because that doesn't that math doesn't work, if that makes sense. But please be aware of all these things. Now, the last thing with Jax in particular, I have heard, I've never been able to see this for myself, but I've heard there have been some scams that somehow got approved by Apple. Maybe they were too busy like removing Parler to pay attention to who they were letting in. But there was at least one app that got into the Apple Store that if you searched for Jax Liberty, you would find it. You would download it, and it would ask for your seed phrase, assuming you already had a wallet, right? And you so you have a wallet on your computer, and now you want access to your funds on your phone. So you install this thing, you put your seed phrase in, and it basically stole your seed phrase and stole your crypto. There was a person in the, the, the practical cryptocurrency discussion group I started on MeWe a while ago that said when they go in Jack's Liberty and they say receive Bitcoin, It gives them an address, and it says it will give you a new address the next time you when, – so when you receive to this address, the next time you hit receive, it will give you a new address because that's, that's another security protocol. Don't receive all your crypto to the same address because I've given – let's say somebody says, well, I want to buy your, your – uh, I say I sell the used – I put new rims on my car, so I sell the old stock ones to somebody on Craigslist, and they say, yeah, I'll pay with Bitcoin. And I give them my one Bitcoin address where I hold all my Bitcoin. Let's say I have a lot of Bitcoin. A couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, they send me the Bitcoin. I give them the rims and they say, hey, I wonder uh, how much Bitcoin's in that address. They go look on the Block Explorer. They now know me, who I am, how to find me, and that I have a bunch of money. You see the security risk there, right? So you want different addresses. Well, this person said that they stopped getting new addresses from Jack's Liberty. Now that could be a bug. Somebody else said, I think that's what they did since Segwit or something like that. And I'm like, no, no. Every time I receive into Jax, I get a new address. If I was creating a scam, I would want to create a single address so that when I chose to sweep it, meaning take the money out, I have one place to get it from. So that is a concern as well. So You might think then, you know what I need to do? I need to not use Jack's Liberty. I need to use Exodus or Coinami or something like that. Seems like that's a solution to the problem, but if you can do it with one, you can do it with another. My 
thing that I have said since day one with this. I recommend Jax, not because it's the greatest wall in the world, because I use it. Because it was the one I picked when I started out years and years ago, and it's worked fine for me. When you download the Exodus wallet, the Coinami wallet, the Jax wallet, the diddly-doo wallet, go to the company's website that makes the wallet. In the case of Jax, that would be J-A-X-X dot I-O. Do not go to the App Store and look for it. Go to the company's website. Make sure you're on the company's official website. Where it says to get their wallet, you will see the options to get you know, the, the iOS app. Click that. It will redirect on your phone to the App Store to the actual app that they actually provide. That means there will be no confusion between what you're downloading and what you thought you were downloading, because you can't trust Apple, apparently. And I guarantee you, if it can happen to Apple, it can happen in the Play Store, etc. And so if you are going to use one of these multi-currency light wallets, and I like using them for receiving, and once I get to a certain point, then I send it off to my own place to cold store it. Okay, That's the main function that I use in them. Then, then you need to make sure you go to... I know I'm saying this like three times, but there's a reason. I don't want to get another email like this. Go to the company's website directly and get the software, the download, the app, whatever it is, directly from the company that you think you're dealing with. That way you know you're dealing with the official app. Please. I, again, I don't want more emails like this. If you've noticed any anomalies... I would download a separate wallet. If you wanted to even stay with Jax, go to a separate machine. Make sure you go to Jax.io and move the move a little bit of crypto over there. Make sure it works. Don't go sending it all in one, one go and then move it over. And I know there might be some issues here because, well, you know, it costs a lot of money to send some Ethereum right now. Okay. There's other ways to deal with this. You could sweep it. And I'm not going to get into that today, but basically you can get the, the public and private key and you can sweep it into another wallet. Um, or you can, I mean, just one way or another, guys, please be careful. Please be careful because this is what I've been trying to say since day one about crypto, and it's the technicality in trying to deal with government and regulation, but it's also the truth in reality. You don't own any crypto and neither do I. We don't own any crypto. We possess the information that allows us to access it. We know some numbers, and those numbers give access to something sitting on a blockchain that anybody with those numbers can access. And it's where it's different than a bank account. If I give you a bank account, you may be able to put together enough information. If I give you an account number, you may be able to put enough information together to maybe hack my account. But in general, like you can know a bank account. Number And you can't just go get the money. With cryptocurrency, you can know an address, which is like an account number, sort of, and you can't just go get the money. But if you have the two numbers, you can. And, you know, if you get into somebody's bank account and you send money to yourself somewhere else, there's a lot of potential that the authorities, if they care enough, can figure out who did it. If I randomly generate a Bitcoin address somewhere and I sweep your Bitcoin to it, and I open an account with a DEX exchange, 
convert it into a privacy coin and then back into Bitcoin or a stable coin, I can effectively disappear. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Because I think for all the bad it will do, it will do good as well by protecting the privacy of people that do things the right way. But with great power comes great responsibility. There is nobody to call to fix these types of problems. There's no one that can fix them. We, we say not your keys, not your coin for a reason, but that means that if you have somebody steal it, Jax can't put it back for you. There's no FDIC. Those things aren't bad, but they are what they are. And please, I don't want any more emails like this. Please use caution and use good security practices with your crypto. With that, let's wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do and you want to help support it, there's like a simple, super easy way to do that. And that's just do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAZ. Easy to remember, tspaz.com. Go there, you'll see all the items I've reviewed uh, and all the ways that you can buy them. They're in categories uh, and alphabetical, so you can see like all the cooking stuff, you can see all of the EDC stuff, the energy stuff, uh, homesteading stuff, permaculture stuff, uh, aquaponics, and, and all of it is, is listed there. And it doesn't matter if you don't even buy any of that. As long as you start there, you help support us. Today's item of the day, though, is Maldon Sea Salt. This was one of those things, like, I didn't know I wanted this in my life until I knew what it was. And we went to a restaurant one time, and they brought out, like, like hey, can we get some salt? Like, yeah, so they brought this little salt box out. And I was like, what? It's like this flaky, pyramid-shaped, crunchy, delicious salt. And I mean, in the end, it's salt, right? But when you put it on your food, and it kind of stayed in that form. And like, I threw it on some green beans. And like, when you ate it, it had like this salt crunch going with it. I was like, what is this? And the guy's like, oh, it's called Maldon. So I went home and I looked it up. And I'm like, holy shit, this is cool. And it's, you know, for salt, it's expensive, but it's still salt, so it's cheap. So I ordered some and I'm like, this stuff's great. Now, if I was cooking something and it required a teaspoon of salt, I wouldn't put a teaspoon of this in it. This is finishing salt. This is salt that when you set the plate, right before you eat it or you serve it, you, you use this salt. And it's amazing for what it does. And then I was like, you know, when you get that customers who bought this also bought that, I was checking out and it said, maybe you would like smoked Maldon sea salt. And I was like, yes, please. And when I tried that, I was like, where has this been my whole life? Because what this stuff does on a perfectly cooked, beautiful ribeye or strip steak is unfrickin' believable. That smoked taste and that crunchy salt is just amazing. And where else can you, you know, get something like that for five, six bucks that, that can do all of that? And, and it, even though it's not a huge package, It lasts a long time because you're only going to put so much salt on things. And again, we don't cook with this. It's a finishing salt. Check it out. It's not a survival item, but like a lot of things I recommend, it's just a good value for the buck. And it's one of those things that makes your life just a little bit better. And you can buy it through T-SPAS and help support the show or anything else you buy. You can help support the show. Remember, the MSB's on sale. Member Support Brigade's on sale. It's about to go away. I, I, I always get people, I just heard about it listening to a past episode and the dog ate my discount code. And No, no. Monday night, so you got the weekend, 
You got today, you got the weekend, and you got Monday. Monday night, midnight, Central Standard Time, poof, like a fart in the wind, the sale goes away. Right now you can get MSB for 35 bucks a year, use the discounts, get your money back at least twice over. I, I guarantee you, if you use the discounts, you'll end up at least getting $70 in discounts for a $35 payment uh, every year. Um, and it does lock in. It is a long-term program. If you get in on it, uh, not only do you have the discount this year, as long as you stay an active customer, you will contain, you will retain the discount long-term. And the discount code is I want 35. And it's one word, no spaces, all lowercase I, W-A-N-T, three five. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day today. I've had a really great week of songs today. Really kind of songs that kind of reflect on life. And, and songs that give us kind of that that point of looking back. And songs that make us think. And most of them are country songs, too, which I also like. This one's by Thomas Rhett, also a country song. And it's called Remember You Young. And, man, I love this song for so many reasons. Uh, first, Rhett said that in one of the Proverbs, God says, remember your wife or always see your wife in her youth. And so that stuck with him. That's what actually led to this song. And there's some real wisdom in that proverb, because as men get older, we tend to kind of look away from where we came from at times. And, you know, young and pretty can be very attractive to us. And maybe we would forget how beautiful our wife was when we fell in love with her. So there's just guidance from God in that. So that's totally valid, and that really does kind of fit this song. But this song's so much broader than that, because it's really about all his friends. And the, the whole group that got together and wrote the song kind of invoked all their friends into it. Uh, you know, like, you look all refined now, sipping on that wine, but I remember when you were doing tequila shots in a bar. I remember you young. So it's not just about, like, looking at somebody like, let's say your dad, right, when he was in his 30s. And now you're in your 40s, so your dad's in like his 70s or 80s and remembering him young and strong. It's really like even remembering the people that you grew up with, that you hung out with, that you partied with, and then you all kind of like get through that stage in life and you settle down and you become a little bit more squared away and a little bit more refined and you look like the person that would never have been that person. I am a cautious older man now. I am a grandfather. But one time, true story, I stood in the back of a Ford uh, Ranger pickup truck with a roll bar on it, like a jacked-up four-wheel drive one, holding onto that roll bar with two of the best friends I've ever had in my life, military friends. We were in the military at the time. Doing 120 miles an hour across the Bridge of Americas over the Panama Canal, passing a bottle of Jack Daniels back and forth with each other. That's what I did when I was young. That was stupid. That was dumb. We all could have died. But I cannot erase, I cannot erase the fact that that is part of who I am. That Jack Spirko is still alive in me. That Jack Spirko didn't go away. That, I, I can't erase that past of myself. And there's a part of that Jack Spirko that I still want around. The one that will take some risk. The one that will be adventurous. But I want him, you know, holding hands with old man Jack that says, yeah, let's take a risk. Let's not be stupid about it, though. 
Like, if we want a thrill, let's go jump out of an airplane, you know, with someone that knows what they're doing, that knows how to pack a chute right, that has an airplane that's well-maintained. Let's not just go buy a, a, a used parachute off eBay, strap it to our ass, and jump off a bridge and hope it works. I never did that. I did, though, get wired up to bungee cords and plunge off the hometown bridge in hometown Pennsylvania. And let them set it low enough that I would be able to try to grab tree leaves from the bottom of the chasm on the way back up. Would I still do that? Probably not, but for a different reason. Now I am older, and my extended warranty on my body is beginning to expire, and I'm not so worried that I would die, because bungee jumping has a pretty safe track record of not dying. I just don't know how my body would deal with the jarring retching things anymore now that I've been injured a few times. And injuries help us, like, remember we're not young anymore. I think there's maybe some value in that. They help us be a little bit more conservative in a good way as we get older. But what I want you to take from this song on a Friday, especially those of you who are parents of kids that are, like, in their teens, early 20s, going into their 30s, and they're doing all kinds of crazy shit, so did you. Don't be pretentious. Don't act like it never happened. Don't act like you never did it. And even though you are better for having matured through it, don't let every bit of that old version of you go. Remember not only your friends young, but remember yourself young. With that, hope you have a great weekend. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hey buddies that I grew up with All straight laced and married up now You ain't fooling me, it wasn't long ago We tore the roof off that one red light town And hey darling, sipping that red wine All classic kick back on the couch Smiling, I see you shooting tequila, us shutting them college bars down. And no matter how much time goes by, and no matter how much we grow up, for worse or for better, from now till forever, I'll always remember you. Looks at us all like we're kids 
shameless and painless and perfect in ages, forgives all the wrong we 